You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's podcast focused on ways in which we can find our center in the midst of difficult and overwhelmingly stressful times. Before we launch into today's episode, I have some exciting news I want to share with you, which is that I have newly released a free four-part video series called The Science and Soul of Building Resilience. And I'm really excited to be able to offer this as a free resource because it's meant to help us all enhance key pillars of resilience that can aid us in navigating inevitable life stress with more ease and skill and confidence and empowerment. And I chose to focus on the specific pillars of resilience highlighted in the series because they address some of the most common struggles that I tend to see in my clients and you may identify with many of these yourself and they include stress and anxiety, self-doubt, a lack of direction or sense of self, and disconnection from larger meaning and purpose as well as self-criticism or really harsh inner judgments. And like I do in this podcast, the video series integrates science-backed strategies from psychology with tools from ancient wisdom like yoga and meditation to present skills over the course of this series that can be integrated into your daily life. So I really do hope you check it out and feel free to share it with anyone you think may be interested. And you can find the link to the series in the episode notes for today as well as in my Instagram account. And as always, I'd love to know what you think of it. So in terms of today's episode, we will be focusing on strategies for grounding and grounding in the sense of finding a connection to safety and stability and security and soothing, almost like this larger sense of being held even when we are overwhelmed with fatigue and grief and pain and stress. So we can and do often access grounding through our body, but in my mind, true grounding doesn't just involve our physical body. It's a holistic process that when we engage in that holistic process, we can find unification and we can create wholeness. So today we'll be focusing on four key categories of grounding. 
informed by my understanding of Western psychological principles as well as yoga philosophy and Ayurveda. And so we'll focus on finding grounding in the body through the senses, through mindful movement, through food and nutrition. We'll also focus on specific breath practices that can regulate the nervous system. And then we'll also be talking about grounding through mental strategies, so cognitive techniques, cognitive techniques, imagery-based and visualization-based techniques. And we'll also be talking about techniques that involve lifestyles and routines. So I wanted to open up by sharing a quote by Andrea Judith, who is the author of a book called Eastern Body, Western Mind. And in this book, Andrea states, grounding orients us in time and space and connects us to the environment. Being grounded gives us a source of strength through connection to our body and surroundings. So it is from this grounded place that we can approach life with more of a sense of centeredness, of alignment with ourselves and our values, with more resilience and more clarity of what we need to do, how we need to respond to withstand the ebb and flow of life and stress and emotional landscape. So this multidimensional perspective that I have regarding grounding and what it means to achieve true grounding in our being in the current moment is informed, as I said, by Western psychology, yoga philosophy, and Ayurveda. And I wanted to just share a little bit more about the specific aspects of yoga philosophy that seem particularly relevant to this discussion today. So in yoga philosophy... There is a conceptualization of our being as involving five levels, Panchamaya Kosha. And so our being is composed of these five sheaths or bodies or levels of being. And there are five of them. So the word Pancha is translated into the English word five and Kosha sheath. So at our core, the truest sense of ourselves, our soul, our spirit, whatever word aligns with you. But that truest sense of ourself is covered in these five sheaths or layers or bodies or koshas. And so in order to realize our truest inner selves and that radiance and that potential, we need to be operating on balancing at each level of our being in order to access and get to that inner radiance. So we won't be focusing on the kosha system in detail today and we won't only be talking about the kosha system but I offer it because I think it is a useful map for conceptualizing how to organize some of the strategies that we're talking about. So when we talk about grounding through the body, through nutrition, through movement, through bodily awareness, that is the layer of being in yoga philosophy that is referred to as anamaya kosha or the food body. When we're talking about breath work and ways to regulate our nervous system through the breath, we're regulating a more subtle energetic flow through our body and that operates at the level of pranamaya kosha. 
And then when we are talking about cognitive strategies or visualizations or imagery-based techniques, we're operating at the mental or emotional bodily level where traditional psychotherapy tends to operate the most, and that is referred to as monomaya kosha. All of these koshas intersect and overlap and are intertwined, so it's not like one specific technique only applies to one kosha layer. But again, I share it because I think it offers a really useful conceptualization of the layered holistic work that needs to be done in order for us to arrive at a true sense of grounding in that truest essence or nature of ourselves. The other two sheaths or kosha layers that are a part of this system are Vijnanamaya kosha and Anandamaya kosha. We won't be touching on those in too much depth, but to some degree, some of these practices that we are talking about related to grounding are still relevant to these koshas. So Vijnanamaya kosha is the fourth kosha, and it is referred to as the wisdom sheath. Some people think of it as the wisdom mind, the witness. It encompasses our intellect and intuition intertwined. So it's that aspect of our consciousness that is not entangled in what we are doing or thinking, yet is aware of what we are doing and thinking. And Vijnanamaya Kosha builds on the foundation of the previous sheath, the Manomaya Kosha sheath. So our Manomaya Kosha, our emotion, body, our mind, mental body lays the groundwork for us getting to a place where we can achieve this witness mind. And the last kosha, Anandamaya kosha, is often referred to as the bliss sheath or the bliss body. And Anandamaya kosha is about this experience of bliss not simply the feeling of bliss but the experience of bliss so almost like a transcendence to a place where we aren't just witnessing bliss we are the bliss so it's not necessarily even ecstasy or joy or happiness but more a steady state of wholeness and being and integration with the moment and with ourselves and all aspects of our being no matter what circumstances arise. And again, Anandamaya Kosha is still a sheath. It is still a layer or a covering that is outside of our true inner self at our very core, the essence of who we are. And again, there are all sorts of ways that we can achieve a sense of groundedness and integration at these additional layers, Vijnanamaya Kosha and Anandamaya Kosha. And one of them is through meditation. We just won't be delving deeply into those specific practices today, but again, many of the practices that we talk about are foundational in helping us achieve a state of wholeness and integration and balance in these different kosha layers. So I want to begin by talking about ways that we can connect with our physical body to arrive at a sense of grounding. And some of these strategies involve movement and others do not. So the first is to engage in mindful stretch practices. 
So being able to extend our fingers, our arms and legs, rolling our head, our shoulders, this could be done seated or standing, any kind of stretches that to you help you feel a sense of embodiment, a sense of being able to inhabit this vessel that carries you throughout your life. Many people also benefit from some form of mindfulness called a body scan where you rotate your attention through different parts of your body, really just noticing what kinds of sensations exist in your body, what kinds of areas of tension might exist so that you can bring more softness there through a variety of different techniques. So some people, again, use stretching. Some people use deep breathing to open up those areas. Some people use foam rolling or myofascial release. So of course, those are all strategies that can bring a sense of grounding to the body, a sense of centering. There is also a specific technique called progressive muscle relaxation or paired muscle relaxation. There are different permutations of a similar strategy, but essentially you tense and release different muscle groups on the inhale and exhale. So you would, for example, tense your fists on the inhale and release the clenched hand on the exhale. And that contrast between the relaxation and the tension is thought through research studies to produce a greater state of relaxation in the body than simply just trying to relax our muscles or bring mental attention to those muscle groups. So going into that practice in detail is beyond the scope of what we have time for today, but I wanted to offer it up as another strategy that you could look up on your own if that speaks to you. There are also certain kinds of mindful movement practices. So of course, walking slowly and noticing how your foot touches the earth first through the heel and then the midfoot and the ball of the foot and then the toes and then how the next leg rises and really bringing attention there. If you are someone who has mobility challenges and is not able to walk, you can replicate this motion with your hands. So acting as though your hands are your feet, you can alternately raise a hand and then gently, slowly touch the the wrist, the, the edge of the palm, the center of the palm, the pads of the fingers, down onto a table or the earth and so it's almost like this undulating kind of movement and really just using that slow movement that rhythmic movement the connection to the sensations of how your body feels as it connects to whatever support is beneath it as it connects to the sensations of what it is like to move through space that can be a way of grounding some people find that if they add a verbal cue to this movement it can also be very grounding so lifting left knee left heel striking the earth not everyone resonates with that but that is certainly an option to consider of course there are other kinds of mindful movement practices like tai chi and qigong and i'm personally not trained in those methods and so don't feel qualified to talk in more detail about them but again i want to lift them up as various options to explore if you haven't explored them in the past or even if you have, to revisit them to see to what extent they may support you in a bodily-based grounding practice. 
I want to take a minute to highlight some specific yoga postures, some restorative postures. So this would be the physical practice of asana, the branch of yoga dedicated to physical practice, because I think these are postures that you could spend a few minutes doing at various points throughout your day. You don't need to go to a yoga studio. You don't need to be in a yoga class. You could do this during a lunch break or a break between appointments. And so Again, this is only a small subset of the kinds of postures that can be grounding. But I I hope that through the sharing of these postures, it gives you a sense of the kinds of postures that can bring about grounding for many people. One important caveat I want to highlight before I move into talking about each of these postures is that A yoga mentor once told me support precedes action. And so I think especially in this context of a conversation about grounding, it's really important to consider what supports you need in order to lean into these postures in a way that is truly supportive and grounding. So that that may mean using various supports like blocks or blankets or the use of a wall or a chair and so recognizing that that is wise effort that is self-care that is part of the grounding it's not just about creating your body in some kind of shape and rushing there it really is about tuning into the needs of your body and that process of tuning in and scaffolding what is needed for the shape that your body creates in order to maximize the extent to which it is grounding is an essential part of the grounding process. So one really simple posture is what one of my yoga mentors, Ashley Turner, calls earthing, where you lie on the ground face down. You can be outside, you can be on your floor, but there is something about laying your body on the ground, on the earth, allowing your body to feel the sensation of gravity that is very earthing, that is very grounding. If this feels too restrictive in terms of breathing or pressure on your abdomen, you could of course do this lying down or in a position where you're slightly reclined, supported by bolsters or pillows, so somewhat upright with your upper torso. But the idea is to really lean into the sensation of feeling held by the supports beneath you and noticing the touch points, the parts of your body that are connected to the supports beneath you. And face up is referred to in yoga as shavasana or corpse corpse pose. Another really grounding posture is balasana, which many people know as child's pose. And to make this feel more grounding you can place a block underneath your sits bones you can have your arms extended in front of you palms again touching the earth rooting into the earth or you can have your arms arms behind you so allowing your shoulder blades to round slightly the backs of your hands touching the earth so again another posture that brings you literally closer to the ground which can be very grounding. I have a client who gave me permission to share this who loves the practice of simply lying on the ground. When she is feeling extremely anxious she says it. there's something about just lying on the ground that is so helpful to her. Another posture that can be really grounding is Pachimottanasana, which is a seated forward fold. And again, you can sit on a block underneath your sit bones. You can have blocks or bolsters or pillows or blankets under your knees so they are slightly bent. 
And for this posture, you would root down through your sit bones, elongate your spine, reach your crown of your head towards the ceiling, towards the sky, perhaps even raise your arms overhead. And using that union of opposite, the rooting down action of your heels into the floor, of your sit bones into the earth, with the elongation of your spine, the uplift of the crown of your head towards the sky to create that that tension. And then when ready, on an exhale, folding forward to your degree. Just because you can go a certain distance doesn't mean you should or have to. Again, this is about grounding. This is about support. And so this can bring a release to the lower back in a way that can connect us to that rooted sense of ourselves. And so this is another posture that, again, can be very grounding. A similar one is Janusrasana, where again you can sit on a block, have blocks under your knees and legs. One leg would be extended on about a 45 degree angle. The other leg would be bent with the sole of your foot pointing towards the inner thigh. And same principles of as before, rooting down, elongating through the spine. And then it could be a gentle, subtle lean and that is all that is required. And again, that idea of support precedes action, really rooting down with your muscles, with your bones, feeling the weight of your bones, allowing gravity to support you, and also lifting up those two actions allow you to engage more fully in the posture. Apanasana is another really supportive pose where you bring your knees to your chest and hug knees to the chest. You can have one leg fully extended and do one knee at a time. You can have one knee towards the chest and one knee bent with the sole of the foot on the floor. But either way, that is another pose that can be very grounding. Tadasana is a standing pose where you're really connecting with rooting down through all four corners of your feet, imagining that someone drew four dots, a rectangle on the bottom of your foot, and you're pressing down through your feet into the earth, almost like you're ready to jump off of the earth, that kind of pushing away action. Soft bend in the knees, shoulders away from the ears, long spine, palms facing outward. And this, this pose also is one that can both literally and symbolically help you feel as though you have a connection to the earth. You have a ground beneath you. Some people find that they li- if they lift all 10 toes and then gently try to place one toe down at a time, which can be tricky for many of us, but that action of rooting down through those four corners and then lifting the toes and spreading them can solidify and broaden that base. And I'll share two more postures that can be really grounding. One is bridge pose or Setu Bandha Sharvaganasana. And that one's a tricky one for me to say. (laughs) And bridge pose involves having your feet about hip width distant apart, knees bent, soles of the feet on the floor, and gently lifting the pelvis away from the earth. And of course, using your breath, Grounding down through the feet, grounding down through the shoulder blades. Chin is often slightly tucked towards the chest. You can clasp your hands underneath your body for more of a chest opener or you can place palms on the earth for more support. Um, But this is another pose that can also be really helpful. So say to Bandha Sharvangasana. 
And finally, Viparita Karani, which is sometimes referred to as legs up the wall. So bringing your sit bones close to the wall, legs up the wall, and engaging in some grounding through the connection of the backs of your legs against the wall, the seat against the wall, and then your back body on the floor. I'll also say that for Apanasana, Janushashasana, Paschimottanasana, some of those forward fold actions um, and the bringing of knees towards the chest, you can also have the soles of the feet against a wall and sometimes that can add some additional grounding or support. There's actually some research that shows that when our back body is supported by the floor, by a wall, by a couch, by a bolster, that our fight or flight response, that sympathetic nervous system response that prepares us for danger and helps keep us safe is less active. So our body tends to scan the environment less and is less hypervigilant when our back is supported. So I think that's another important thing to think about is that even simply sitting back in a chair if you're feeling really anxious and overwhelmed can help soothe your nervous system and bring some grounding. So in addition to actual physical yoga postures, there are of course a variety of other grounding techniques that involve the physical body. So you may remember from a few episodes back when I spoke with Ivy Ingram, we talked about this Ayurvedic practice called Abhyanga, which is a warm oil massage. And this is something that can be extremely grounding, even if you focus only on the the feet. And again, grounding through the feet can be really supportive because there is a literal connection between the, the our feet and the world around us. So that is another practice that I highly recommend and encourage you to try if you haven't yet already. If you want to do a more extended practice, you would use long strokes on the limb. So for example, from wrist to elbow, from elbow to shoulder, and on the joints, more circular motions. And there are all sorts of YouTube videos. And I can include some references in the episode notes as well for you to consider that can offer some guidance as to how to approach this practice. There's also some research that shows that high-intensity interval training can be really grounding for the physical body and bring that parasympathetic nervous system online, the one, the part of the nervous system that puts the brakes on our stress response. So this could be jumping jacks, burpees, push-ups, high knees, running in place. It doesn't have to be a long time. It could be 10 to 15 seconds. But there is something about that that has a pretty strong emotion regulation capacity. Similarly, in terms of high sensation kinds of practices in the body, running cool or warm water over your hands or face can be really grounding. And there's also some research on ways in which we can engage the sympathetic, excuse me, the parasympathetic nervous system to slow down our stress response through what's called the dive reflex. The dive reflex is an automatic response in our body that happens when we are diving that slows down our heart rate, again, because of the barometric pressure to keep our body safe. And so we can simulate what is a reflexive action in our body that engages that parasympathetic nervous response through a practice 
in which we hold our breath and then put our face in either a bowl of cold water or we hold a cold pack like a Ziploc bag of cold water on our eyes and cheeks and hold that for 30 seconds or for as long as you can but no more than 30 seconds and it's important for the water not to be freezing for it to be at least above 50 degrees and a lot of people when I present this strategy to them think it seems kind of wild and so I encourage you to give it a try the next time you're feeling really activated by something to see how it works for you and to see what you think. Also, certain movements of the body can really be helpful. Um, Big muscle movements like lifting weights or really pushing into a wall or a chair or digging your heels into the floor. Something that activates big muscle groups can really be helpful even if you're not wanting to do some kind of high intensity interval training or sequence. Also really rhythmic movements can be helpful for some people. So swinging or swaying. So you could literally sit in a rocking chair or or a swing at a playground or you could sway your body left to right or front to back. And so again just really tuning into what feels grounding and supportive for your body. Other ways to ground through the physical body involve touch. So really touching physical objects around you. So this could be carrying a grounding object in your pocket like a smooth rock or a piece of clay that you can squish or something that has important meaning to you. could be a piece of cloth or yarn or a a token, a small statue, and something that you can rub and touch to give you a sense of grounding when you are feeling groundless. You can also touch objects around you. So for some people, before they engage in a mindfulness practice, it really helps them orient to the environment to not only just look at what is around all 360 degrees of their environment, but then to literally touch things. So to touch the chair that they're sitting on, to touch the table, to touch their clothing, to reach out to feel a sense of space in all directions. And so using touch as an opportunity to ground is really helpful and again you can simply connect to the somatic experience of what it feels like to touch and to receive touch you can also use descriptors verbally if that helps so you can label textures and colors and shapes and lightness and darkness and materials and weight and temperature and you can compare one object to the next that my my chair feels colder than this table right here so certainly some of those verbal accompaniments can be really helpful. You can also use a body-based mindfulness practice. So really feeling the weight of your body in the chair, wiggling your toes in your socks. Sometimes when I'm in the midst of a difficult conversation with someone, I'll place my hand on my belly as a way to just express a physical gesture of care that can give me a sense of grounding and can remind me to breathe deeply. So just a sense of connection to yourself and connection to the world around you and then soothing with the senses is another way that we can ground through physicality so warm baths warm foods or beverages weighted blankets cooking comfort foods that have certain aromas that bring you a sense of grounding that maybe bring up positive memories or associations some people really enjoy incense or essential oils and those that have a particularly earthy grounding quality can be really beneficial and of course you can 
engage in mindful eating practices or mindfulness practices when you are engaging in the soothing. So when you're in the warm bath, really feeling the temperature of the water, how it feels, if there are different parts of your body that experience the water differently, same with a Oh, food or beverage so you can deepen the self-soothing by really bringing your mindful awareness to what these sensations feel like in the body and there also is a practice which I recently described a little bit on my Instagram account which is this practice of finding your center being able to connect with the part of your body in which you feel most safe and most secure and most stable and I had a mentor once that referred to it as an unshatterable place a place that you can bring your mind to that you can physically touch when you're feeling really anxious or worried or or overwhelmed or angry because being able to come home to ourselves in that way to find that place in our body that feels somewhat protected can be really powerful and for many of us who've been through trauma who have complicated relationships with our bodies this may not be simple and at the same time I do think it's a practice that can be cultivated like anything else and to to be able to find that center in our bodies is really powerful. Sabine Celesi has a, a wonderful book about belonging and she talks about how true mindfulness is really about embodiment and that mindfulness is a bit of a misnomer because it leads us to think that mindfulness is really about the mind when it's really about being in the body and and to feel a sense of belonging in the world we often need to feel at home in ourselves and in our bodies and so that is another practice that can be really powerful. So I want to switch gears a little bit towards food and nutrition and spend some time talking about some principles to keep in mind that favor grounding. So I'm not necessarily going to go into details of specific foods because again, as you might remember from one of my recent episodes on the mind-gut connection, I don't want to prescribe a certain diet to anyone or label foods as good or bad because I, I just don't believe in that philosophy. I think different diets, different foods work for people and and certain foods are not categorically bad or good. So I I also think it's easier to remember principles rather than specific foods because once you internalize the principles of the kinds of foods that can be grounding, you can more easily seek out those foods in your environment and make certain choices that align with grounding nature in food. So these recommendations come from Ayurveda, which is a very complex ancient science and it is a a medicine and is translated as the science of life. And Ayurveda is a very complicated system with all sorts of recommendations in terms of holistic health and well-being. And so I don't want to undersell it by just sharing a portion of it today and so it feels important for me to just name that that what I am sharing today is part of a larger complicated web of very powerful ancient wisdom. So the first principle in terms of grounding through food and nutrition is favoring warm qualities over cold. And so this is both about warmth and temperature and also warmth and the the energetic qualities of the food. And this also involves using warming digestive spices. So 
At the same time, even though we're going for warming foods, think stews, soups, teas, warm beverages, and digestive spices that can be warming like black pepper, cinnamon, cumin, garlic, ginger, nutmeg, oregano, paprika, saffron, turmeric, thyme, the list goes on. You can certainly Google this and find out more information. We also don't want things to be too warming. So we are striving for balance. And in Ayurveda, balance is is really the goal. And so as you all know, balance is an iterative process. Our life changes, our bodies change, our stressors change. And so we continually need to be iterating too when it comes to our grounding practices. And that's one reason why I'm offering so many practices today because not all practices work in all circumstances and even the strategies that tend to be the most effective for us sometimes don't work given what we are facing. So avoiding the use or excessive use I should say of overly warming spices like cayenne and and chili peppers. Those foods could be a bit too warming. So because we're going for these warming foods, we're also trying to minimizing foods that have more of a cooling energy. So cold foods or drinks like popsicles, ice cream, carbonated foods, um, frozen foods, as well as large quantities of raw fruits and vegetables. So if you think about a salad even a big, bountiful, delicious salad, there is a a cold quality to that salad, even if you're eating it at room temperature. And so, of course, we also have to be realistic about our lifestyles. And so I would never tell anyone to throw away leftovers because they've been kept in their refrigerator or freezer. But one way that you can minimize the cold quality of that food and make it more warming is to let it come to room temperature and eat it at room temperature. Freshly cooked food is often ideal from an Ayurvedic perspective in terms of the grounding qualities it can promote. But again, that isn't always possible. Another Ayurvedic principle involves favoring moist and oily foods over dry foods. So this would be cooked foods rather than raw foods, using generous amounts of high quality oils or ghees, and also staying really hydrated, drinking plenty of fluids, ideally warm or hot. But even if you do not like hot beverages, I would say something that is not cooler than room temperature would be ideal. Other moist foods involve things like berries and melons and zucchini and yogurt, things that have really hydrating preparations, again like soups and stews. Um, Oily foods like avocado and coconut and olives and whole milk and eggs and cheese and wheat and nuts and seeds can also generally be supportive. And certain Foods that would be more on the dry end of the spectrum rather than the moist end of the spectrum would be things like crackers, popcorn, white potatoes, beans can be very drying, and dried fruits. Um, In terms of oils, there are all sorts of oils that can be really nourishing and supportive. Oils like olive oil, almond, olive, safflower, avocado, peanut, sesame, the list goes on. Oils that tend to be more drying and less supportive include corn oil, soy oil, flaxseed oil, and canola oil. 
Another principle is favoring grounding and nourishing and stabilizing foods over lighter foods. So really going for nutritionally dense foods that can sustain you. So this could be things like root vegetables, things with high protein like nuts and seeds. It could be adding certain spices to to milk, um, like a turmeric, cinnamon, spiced milk, stewed or cooked fruits can be very grounding and nourishing, and many different kinds of cooked grains. And so again, trying to avoid as much as possible highly processed foods or canned foods or ready-made meals, mostly because of the nutritional density relative to foods that are less processed. There are also certain stimulants like caffeine and nicotine and hard alcohol that also tend to have a non-grounding quality and so having those in moderation can also be helpful in terms of grounding um, which is a, a little bit challenging in that oftentimes when we are not that grounded we don't sleep as well and so we drink more coffee or to take the edge off we might have a glass of wine or a beer or a cocktail and so really just keeping in mind trying to moderate that because it might help in the moment with you feeling either more grounded or more energetic but long term it can add to this destabilizing quality that we can feel in the midst of challenging times. And another principle I want to highlight related to food is favoring smooth foods over rough foods. So think about roughage, raw fruits, raw vegetables. As I've said, that would be more beneficial in moderation if you were really going for more of a grounding quality. That being said, even cooked foods that have a bit of roughness like broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower and dark leafy greens and many different kinds of beans can be rough. So if you do eat those foods, the recommendation Ayurvedically is to cook them extremely well and to serve them with generous amounts of oil or ghee and maybe even to add some of the spices I mentioned that can promote digestion and and add to the the grounding quality so again the nutrition the density of the nutrition can help with grounding the warmth can help with grounding and also our ability to digest the foods can help with grounding we can feel more grounded more able to tackle life when we're well nourished and that can help with stability you could also consider smooth foods in texture. So things like bananas or rice puddings or hot cereals, pureed soups, that can also be a way to soothe roughness. So for example, if you really love cauliflower or dark greens, cooking them well, pureeing them in a soup might minimize some of those rough qualities that would exacerbate the destabilization that they could contribute to um, and instead promote some of that groundedness. I won't go into this in too much detail just for the sake of time, but I do want to lift up the fact that Ayurveda also recommends certain tastes or rasas in terms of grounding. So generally for grounding, we would be prioritizing sweet, sour, and salty tastes and avoiding pungent, bitter, and astringent tastes. So this doesn't mean we're eating large amounts of sugar when it comes to the sweet taste, more that we're integrating foods that have a naturally occurring sweetness, um, like 
fruits and most grains and root vegetables and fresh yogurt and eggs, nuts, seeds, etc. And the sour quality could be adding a squeeze of lemon or a little vinegar or kimchi to something. So those are just some examples. And then the pungent qualities that we're trying to minimize are those sort of spicy hot flavors I mentioned that can come from chilies or raw onions or radishes. And the bitter qualities that we're minimizing are from bitter vegetables like dandelion greens, collard greens, bitter melon, eggplant, even chocolate can have a bitter quality. And astringent qualities have a flavor of dryness, almost like a chalky taste that can dry the mouth. So if you imagine biting a very green banana, that has an astringent quality. And so often legumes are astringent. So pinto beans, chickpeas, black beans. I'm in some fruits and vegetables also have an astringent quality. So again, this is a much, of course, deeper conversation that I'm highlighting quickly. But again, I just want to call your attention to the fact that it's not just the actual foods that we're eating and the principles that we're trying to lift up for a grounding quality. Also, some of the rasas or the tastes or the flavors in the foods also make a difference. So let's transition now into talking about breath work and ways in which breath work can really be powerful as a grounding technique. So of course there are an infinite number of breathing techniques and the techniques I'm going to be talking about today are pranayamic techniques or breath control techniques. There are mindfulness-based techniques where we don't change the breath and we observe the breath and the sensations of the breath and that can be very grounding. Those just aren't the strategies that I'm focusing on today. So I want to talk you through three different breath practices that can be extremely grounding. And they include the three-part breath practice or Dirga Swasam, Dirga Pranayam, Veloma breath practice, which is translated as against the grain, and Nadi Shodana, which can be referred to as Nadi cleansing. So I am going to go through these practices somewhat briefly for the sake of time, but I encourage you to explore them in more depth if you are interested. And I will talk about any contraindications so that you can be aware of times that these practices may not be right for you. What I will say though is that regardless of the type of breath practice that you experiment with, research shows that slowed breathing practices have a lot of research support in Western traditions and Eastern traditions. And in fact, when we can get our breath pattern to about five to six breaths per minute, that's about the amount that is required, uh, the amount of slowness that is required. Of course, it could be slower than that if you wanted, but at least that amount of slowness is required to engage that parasympathetic nervous system, that part of our nervous system that puts the brakes on our stress response. So I don't think you need to or we need to get too caught up in the details of counting breath at first, but I think at a minimum, being able to just be mindful of your breath and trying to slow it down, whether it's taking a deep breath in and trying to lengthen your exhale a tad more than your inhale, you could start there and that could be your practice. So it doesn't have to be overly complicated. Again, I'm offering these strategies to give you variety, but don't want you to get the impression that 
a more complicated breath practice is a better practice. It's really a matter of what works for you. It's not a hierarchy of which practices are more or less beneficial because the reality is that any kind of slowed breathing practice is beneficial in grounding us, in calming us down, in soothing our nervous system. So the three-part breath practice is a calming breath practice and Many of you have probably heard of belly breathing. And so the reason that I introduced three-part breath, three breath practice is because I've seen so many clients who have been previously exposed to belly breathing and have conditioned themselves to focus so much on breathing in their belly that they end up only breathing in their belly. And this actually happened to me many years back when I was first learning how to retrain my system to breathe better, that I was focusing so much on breathing in my belly that I really wasn't using my full lung capacity. So in three-part breath practice, we're focusing on expanding three different parts of our respiratory system. We're focusing on diaphragmatic breathing, which is the belly part. We're focusing on intercostal or thoracic breathing, which is the expansion of the ribs laterally out to the sides. And then we're focusing on clavicular breathing, sort of that upper chest region, because our lungs are huge organs. They rise all the way to our clavicle. And so when we are taking a breath in, we are first breathing into our belly, then expanding our rib cage, and then breathing into the chest. So to really breathe fully and maximally and achieve the full benefits of this kind of practice, we're wanting to breathe into all three areas as expansively and smoothly as possible without straining. So again, this is a practice that can take time. I've had clients whose muscles will hurt after practicing this because they are retraining their muscles and their bones to move in different ways. So I encourage you to have compassion for yourself if this feels really hard to to watch videos, to stick with the practice because it really can be very powerful. There are different ways that you can experiment with the exhale and so you can simply exhale just as an exhale or you can practice a top-down exhalation which means first exhaling through the upper chest then the ribs, and then the low belly. So basically going in the opposite direction as you did on the inhale. Or you can practice a bottom-up exhalation, which I personally find a bit harder, where you exhale first in the low belly, then the intercostals, and then up to the chest. So to me that feels a little bit more counterintuitive, but, but all three of those options work just fine. So I'll give you a minute to just practice with that. So if you can find a comfortable position, eyes open or closed and see if you can first on your inhale, breathe into your belly, all 360 degrees, and then work your way into your rib cage, laterally expanding outward to the sides and then breathing into your chest at the tip top. Often when I'm teaching this strategy, I actually take it step by step. So I have people touch their belly for a few breath cycles, focus on just the belly. Then I have them touch the sides of their rib cage. So thumbs pointing towards the spine and four fingers pointing towards the navel and really focusing on expanding, moving their hands away from each other for a few breath cycles and then bringing their hands to right above or below their clavicles and trying to expand and breathe all the way up there. And the clavicular 
the clavicular breathing is often the hardest to feel. It's the more subtle. So sometimes if you take a very deep inhale until you feel like you can't take in any more air and then try to take in one more final sip of air, that can activate the utmost part of your lung capacity. So you can practice with doing it in that way if, if you prefer. The next breath practice is called the Veloma breath practice against the grain. And again, you can do this seated or lying down. Oh, I should mention for the three-part breath practice, there are no known contraindications. So this is a breath practice that can work for everyone. Of course, if you are pregnant or have some kind of digestive or abdominal issues, you know, being gentle with yourself. Again, we don't want there to be any straining, but there aren't any specific health conditions that would interfere with this practice or make it harmful. So Veloma breath practice contraindications include higher low blood pressure or pregnancy. So this is not one you would practice if you fall into one of those categories. And again, you can practice the seated or lying down. And essentially you are combining inhales with pauses and again this is another practice that you can do in a number of different ways and I'm just going to share one with you today so if you think of it as almost like steps so you inhale a bit and pause you inhale a bit and you pause you inhale a bit and you pause and then you have a long smooth slow complete exhalation out so it's almost like on the inhale the arrow goes up on the pause the arrow goes to the right on the inhale, the arrow goes up. On the pause, the arrow goes to the right. I'm just trying to give you the visual of the steps. And then exhale all the way out. You can experiment with how long of an inhale makes sense to you, how long of a retention of the inhale makes sense to you. Again, we're not going for straining, but this is another kind of practice. So it's almost like you're inhaling, inhabiting that that space, and then moving on to the next inhale. And the third breath practice is called Nadi Shodana or Nadi Cleansing, which is a balancing breath. It can be calming and grounding. Some people also experience it as energizing, so it really depends on how it works physiologically in your body. And the main contraindications for this practice would be fever. If you have blocked nostrils, it can be challenging to do. And if you can do it, without constraining your breath even with some blockage you you are welcome to do so but if the nostrils are so blocked that it becomes uncomfortable then it would be contraindicated so this practice is one of the more well-researched breath practices there are over 44 randomized control trials that have studied it it's been shown to decrease cortisol which is a stress hormone in the body and to decrease sympathetic nervous system activity it also has cognitive and cardiopulmonary improvement so a lot of research supporting this practice so essentially you you can use your hands in a number of ways but one way in which it's commonly done is to place your index finger and your middle finger on the area of your forehead between your eyebrows and your thumb so again this would be presuming you're using your right hand your elbow is at about a 45 degree angle your right thumb is on top of your right nostril or the fleshy part of your nose that covers the nostril and then the index finger or the pinky is on the left nostril and you would close the right nostril and begin by inhaling through the left pause 
close the left nostril and exhale through the right. Pause, inhale through the right nostril. Pause, close the right nostril and exhale through the left. And so that would be one full breath cycle. So I envision it as a rainbow or an upside down U shape. So you're alternating the nostril through which you are inhaling and exhaling and closing each one accordingly. If for whatever reason closing the nostrils feels restrictive, some people practice this breath without actually opening and closing the nostrils and visualizing the breath entering and exiting the nostrils in the pattern that I just described. There are also certain variations of this practice. So if this is something you're interested in and want to learn more about, I encourage you to explore those. So I want to transition now into talking about some mental grounding strategies. So these, again, can be useful at different points in time. And the first I want to highlight or lift up is a self-compassion practice. There's a lot of research that supports the utility of self-compassion in building resilience in life. And there are, of course, some longer guided meditative practices or mindfulness practices that can be useful in cultivating self-compassion but one of my favorites is a really brief self-compassion practice that you can do in under a few minutes so when you are struggling when you are in the midst of a hard moment engaging in these three steps they this could be something you do mentally it could be something that you write out it could be something you share with someone else but the first step is to acknowledge the painful reality of what's happening so this is hard I'm hurting I'm angry. I'm having a hard time accepting what I'm being faced with right now. So something that truthfully, without mincing words, without turning a hurricane into sunshine, just really acknowledging the true full reality of what's happening. The second step is acknowledging how that painful reality is a part of being human, how this experience connects you to the larger web of humanity in which we exist, with which you are interwoven. So this could be a statement like, I'm not alone. Other people are experiencing this too. I've gone through this in the past. It's understandable to feel shame after you've hurt someone that you love. It's really hard to be a parent in a pandemic. Something that acknowledges that you're not unique or problematic or broken, that part of what you're experiencing is what makes you human and is actually something that unites you with other people. Because so often when we're in pain, we feel isolated, like we don't belong, like there's something wrong with us. And so recognizing this shared humanity can be an antidote to that. The third piece is a statement of self-kindness. So what can you say to yourself in the same way that you might say to a friend who is going through a similar experience? Now, this is the part where I often get pushback from clients. They feel like it's cheesy. They feel like it's not them. And so I encourage you to explore what kind of self-compassionate statement resonates with you. Again, it could be something like, I hope to one day forgive myself. It could be, may I have a good night's sleep tonight? Or, I hope that I can find a way to treat myself how I would treat a friend in a similar circumstance. Or it could be, may I get through this? May I find the supports that I need to get me through this difficult time? 
May I let myself be sad. May I take care of myself. So the phrasing can be whatever you want. Sometimes I find that a dialectical statement, as I call it, can be helpful. So a statement with an and. So on one end of the statement, you acknowledge the painful reality of what's happening. And on the other end of the statement, you acknowledge something that may be harder to access or focus on, given how intense the emotions are. So for example, a statement of self-kindness could look something like, I'm totally overwhelmed and I know if I pace myself I can get through this because I've done it before. Or I'm feeling like a failure as a parent and I know that that isn't 100% true. Or and I know that there are some things that I do well as a parent. So coming up with an aspect of the situation that you're not focusing on as much, perhaps thinking about the shared humanity piece and connecting it together in this both and kind of statement. Another strategy that I think can be really helpful is related, which is having some kind of affirmation or coping statement that you put on your phone, that you put on a post-it note, that you post in your house, something like, I can get through this, I'm resilient, this is a hard time, maybe find solace in each other, something, it could be a poem, it could be a quote, it could be a photograph that to you represents resilience. So something that can give you a sense of grounding and a sense of hope that you can actually look at or connect to and repeat to yourself. You can also read aloud certain poems or quotes or lyrics from songs or meaningful book chapters. Sometimes the reading aloud of something can bring some grounding because it forces you to bring more attention to it rather than reading silently where we can kind of get lost in our heads. Imagery can also be really useful. So if you're struggling with a difficult moment, you can call to mind an image of a heroic or historical figure that you admire and source some groundedness and safety and security from that thinking about how they persevered through difficult times it could be a symbol or a meaningful object and bringing that to mind it could be imagining a safe place from some point in your life for me the Oregon coast is a place that I associate with so much security and safety and so when I look at pictures of the Oregon coast when I call to mind what the Oregon coast looks like and sounds like and smells like and imagine placing my toes in the water and laying on the sand, that is something that brings me a sense of security and and trust in things ultimately being okay on relatively speaking, even though they might be really hard. So it could be a place in nature And thinking about all the sounds and colors and shapes and textures. It could even be imagining people that you care about literally in your mind or even looking at a picture. And sometimes that visual representation can be really helpful. Sometimes when I'm in the midst of a difficult interaction and I feel myself getting really activated, calling to mind an image can can be helpful in a different kind of way so it can bring me a sense of grounding that is somewhat different than the images I just described which are more about safety or resilience or perseverance so for example if I'm being met with some harsh feedback and I'm finding myself getting defensive and kind of going out of my body a little bit imagining a screen door So I'm receptive to this feedback, I'm hearing it, and yet there is a barrier there. 
Or if I'm hearing a story from a friend that's really painful and bringing up some of my own painful feelings, imagining myself as a midwife, as sort of helping deliver that baby and hand it back to the person so that I'm not absorbing, I'm not taking on their pain. Or even thinking about a mirror, sort of reflecting back to someone what they are feeling and having that image in mind of a mirror, again, so that you're not taking on something that isn't yours. Uh, Some other kinds of mindfulness practices can be grounding through your environment. So using all of your senses. So describing a an everyday activity in detail for someone who can't see it. So how you're making a meal, what herbs you're using. It could be this practice you might have heard of 54321 where you name five things that you can see, four things that you can hear, three things that you can touch, two things that you can smell, one thing that you can taste. So that can be a really helpful grounding strategy. And also some of these kind of mental games, so to speak, can be helpful when you're in the midst of a really intense emotional moment trying to think of different types of foods for every letter of the alphabet or as many cities as possible that begin with the letter A or um, as many amphibians that you can think of. So almost like a categories game as a way to just keep you in the present moment without getting hijacked by emotions. So I know we're nearing the end of a time, nearing the end of our time, excuse me. And so I just want to highlight a few additional lifestyle practices that I think can be really supportive to grounding. So as we're talking about grounding and bringing ourselves to a more centered place, again, nature is often a place where we can feel more connected to the earth, which has a grounding kind of vibe or energy to it. So we can do that through gardening, digging, getting our hands in the soil. We can get that through walking barefoot, through breathing in fresh air, through sticking our hands or feet in the ocean or swimming. We can place our back against a tree, leaning against a tree. As I said earlier, having our backs supported can decrease hypervigilance, which can be grounding. We can cook food for ourselves. Sometimes grounding comes from nourishment and sometimes we get that nourishment from relationships and sometimes we give it to ourselves. So cooking food for ourselves can be really nourishing. Sometimes it can be really nourishing to be around animals and really grounding to be around pets or other people's pets or even visiting farms and and that can be a very soothing grounding kind of practice physical touch can also be really helpful for some people so again it could be through a weighted blanket it could also be through a really great hug from someone or a snuggle with with your pet or your child so certainly that's something to keep in mind There's also a type of yoga called nada yoga in which sound is used to create vibration and resonance within the body and that can be very grounding. So if you've ever engaged in sound healing or sound baths, that could be very grounding. Also in general, music can be really helpful. Having a sort of playlist of music that really grounds you can be very powerful. If you play an instrument or know other people who play instruments, listening to that live music and those reverberations in your body can be extremely grounding. 
Also, the practice of meditation can be really grounding. I know not everyone is interested in meditation, but there are certain kinds of of meditation that tend to be very supportive and grounding in this holistic way that we're talking about. So yoga nidra, for example, is a practice that research shows can bring as much restoration and relaxation when it is practiced regularly over a period of time as two to three hours of deep sleep. So this 20-minute meditative practice can be really restorative and grounding. I have a friend who practices yoga nidra every day during her lunch break lying on the floor. And is it's extremely grounding. And one part of yoga nidra or certain variations of yoga nidra is identifying a sankalpa which is translated in a number of ways, but one is our heart's deepest longing or our soul's desire, something that transcends the the ego mind, the part of us that is driven by production and craving and avoiding pain. And it, it comes from a higher wisdom and intuitive place. And it can take the form of a positive phrase expressed in the present tense as though it's already happening in the moment so something like I am peaceful and content or I'm following my inner wisdom or I'm doing what I need to take care of myself so I can get through this difficult time so you may not fully feel that you're doing it but it's almost like a positive intention again that comes from that deeper wise part of yourself not that cognitive cerebral intellectual part of yourself not the part of yourself that thinks you should do this thing or thinks you should want to do this thing but deep down in your heart what do you wish for yourself what is some kind of way that you could express that so it's not really even an affirmation it's not a way of battling against a negative belief it's a way of naturally connecting with your inner wisdom and and summoning something that really resonates in your mind and hearty heart and body um, and that feels believable and achievable on some level perhaps from that wise inner part of yourself rather than the sort of ego intellectual part of yourself and so sankalpa is often a part of yoga nidra but it can be something that can be done separately as well as a practice other grounding lifestyle strategies can involve routine and rhythm So having daily routines and structures can be very grounding. We think about children and bedtime rituals and how supportive that is to them to cue grounding to get them ready for sleep. And and we are no different. We can settle into having a structure and that container can be really grounding. As part of that rhythm and structure, having ample time between transitions and figuring out what you can do between activities and during that transition time that's most supportive I have a friend who did an experiment for two weeks where she scheduled 30 minutes in between every single activity that she did and she told me about how it went and she said it was an incredible experience now it may not be something she can sustain forever but it was really instructive in realizing how that sense of spaciousness was actually really grounding even in the midst of a lot of stress There are also some pieces of research that talk about our environment and the organization of our physical space. And in some therapies, we call this creation of a kind environment. That if you really tend to your physical space, both how it's organized and structured, what it looks like aesthetically in terms of the colors and having plants there and meaningful objects, that it really makes a difference to your inner world. And so you can 
clean your space, you can get rid of clothes in your attic, both literally and symbolically, that clearing out of what doesn't serve you, of what you don't need, and structuring the aesthetics of your environment in a way that supports you and brings you a sense of calm can be really helpful. Imagine that many of us have had an experience where seeing a mess in your house, a pile of laundry that isn't folded, a disorganized desk is further anxiety provoking. And so sometimes that act of creating order can be helpful. And also some attitudes and just ways that we approach life can help us feel more grounded. So of course this idea of I think transition and spaciousness is really important to consider. And also I think this piece about striving And if we're focusing on production more than process, if we're focused on rushing more than slowness, like thinking about for you, what are the qualities of grounding that help you feel centered? How do you define grounding? In an ideal world, if you were the most grounded you could possibly imagine, what would that look like? What qualities would you be embodying? And is there some small step you could take towards integrating one small sliver of one of those qualities in your life in a regular way for the next week, even if it's just a couple of times in the week. And so maybe cramming in less, maybe not engaging in in so much striving, maybe considering who you're surrounding yourself with. Are you surrounding yourself with people who tend to ratchet you up and don't necessarily ground you whether it's because of just their energy or how they show up in the world or how they talk or how they carry themselves the kinds of topics they talk about the kinds of activities you tend to do when you engage with them thinking about who you're surrounding yourself with and again this doesn't have to be permanent it's not about cutting people out of your lives just being intentional about the grounding energy of the other people surrounding you because it is relational and again grounding is a holistic process. And finally, thinking about how you show up. Is there a certain way in which you can show up in your life that is more grounded? Because often that gets mirrored back. So if we show up with a lot of rushing and anxiety and disorganization, oftentimes that gets mirrored back and it sort of engenders more of the same. And so if we can find a way to approach our interactions with more ease and time and attention, oftentimes we can be met with the same in return. So I know we covered a whole lot of grounds today, but I think for me that felt important, again, given not all tools and strategies work for all of us at all times. And so having a menu of options to choose from and experiment with is just so important and to approach grounding from this holistic perspective. So as I said, we talked about ways of connecting with the body, both with and without movement, through various exercises of stretching, mindful movement, yoga postures. We talked about various physical grounding techniques. We talked about food and nutrition and various principles that can help us integrate more grounding foods and nutrients into our bodies. We also talked about breath work and three specific breath practices that can be particularly grounding. And then we talked about a variety of mental grounding strategies, including self-compassion and visualizations and then a variety of different lifestyle techniques that include but are not limited to meditative techniques that are ways in which we can structure our lives organize our lives 
that can affect the intentions and stances with which we approach life that can cultivate more grounding. So I hope this was helpful to you. I would love to hear what you think about some of these strategies and how they're working in your life. And also, again, I encourage you to check out this new four-part series on building resilience that I'm just so excited to share with you and so look forward to being with you again soon. Thank you again so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.